Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Um, glad to be with you. If you weren't here with us a few weeks ago, my name is Lee Camp. I'm one of the elders here at Otter Creek Church. And Mike and Jeannie Cagle up here on the front row. Mike's also one of the uh, shepherds here. And so we're week two of a uh, four-week series of classes where kind of the elders are kind of scattered through different age groups, revisiting the uh, 2029 vision. Uh, and we'll kind of sort through some more considerations from that today. Let me begin with a prayer, and uh, then we'll get going. Gracious God, we give thanks for the gifts of this day and for your mercies, which are new to us every morning. We thank you, O Lord, that you have loved us, and that you have given us the gift of life out of that love. We are grateful that you have not abandoned us or abandoned your creation as poorly stewarded human history has been in receiving the gifts that you have offered us, so often riddled with our own willfulness, stubbornness, at worst our violence and wars and animosity and hostility oppression, and yet you have not cast us off, and we give thanks. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us as your people to bear witness to your, your love and to bear witness to your justice and your mercy, that you would allow us not to be distracted by petty arguments or partisan hostilities or anything that would distract us from the promise of the abundance and goodness of life for which you have created us. And we pray, O oh Lord, for such graces and gifts. And we have, in fact, tasted and seen, O oh Lord, that you have continued to give those kinds of gifts. And we give thanks. I pray for these uh, young men and young women here, especially in this classroom and the wonderful, exciting, challenging, difficult time that it is in uh, one's 30s. Do give them, we pray, wisdom, adventuresome spirits, perseverance, steadfastness, the capacity to take things one day at a time in the midst of all the many demands and challenges and to be able to receive the gifts and the graces and the love of each day. May your kingdom come in all of its fullness, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. amen. I was thinking about Jacob's uh, invitation to you all for the uh, gathering next Sunday night. I, I get to teach a class at Lipscomb called Joy and the Good Life, and we look at, we, we kind of do this overlap of theology, moral philosophy, positive psychology, and looking at things that historically people have learned about living life well. And um, the, uh, there was a study done, there's been a 75-year-long longitudinal study done by, by some researchers at Harvard, and um, they were looking for, they took a group of you know, Harvard men and normal men. <laughs> and um, and they were looking for variables 
that uh, the most significant variables by which people at the end of their life would say, I've had a good life, I've lived life, and I've had joy in my life. Anybody, anybody know what, what the guess is on what they've found is true, whether you're a Harvard man or a, not a Harvard man, whether you're you know, high-end socioeconomic or not working class? Community. Yeah, community and friendship. Yeah. And um, so it's just a remarkable sort of, uh, remarkably important thing. And, and there's all sorts of studies, you know, they increasingly show, I haven't read this guy's book yet. Um, some of you may know the book, Bowling Alone. You might have heard of this book. He's look, looking at studies of, of the ways in which uh, increasingly we don't have people in our homes, increasingly we don't, in, you know, the, the title, Bowling Alone, points to the fact that he, he starts tracing socio sociology of the demise of bowling leagues as correlate, correlative to the loss of social connections and normal, having people in your house to play cards, having people in your house to play meals, having close friendships. And the ways in which um, this has serious, deleterious effects upon um, our lives. And so, simple opportunities uh, like Jacob's making opportunity available uh, are, are really important. And uh, to have friendships that you've had for a long time are really important. Last thing I, want, last thing I was thinking about as I was, as I was praying. Um, I know my wife and I have three sons. They're now 26, 24, and 22. Something like that. 26, 24, <laughs> 26, 24 and 21. That's what they are. Um, and I know that for us, um, the 30s were, kind of as I prayed, they're simultaneously incredibly demanding and difficult and wonderful. Um, but a lot of times just difficult uh, because you're trying to figure out who you are, what you're going to do with your life, how to deal with new things that you're seeing in your life, uh, opportunities in your life. Um, if, you're, if you're married, navigating, you know, how, how, do you, how do you lean into this relationship in a way that you have good habits that facilitate flourishing through, through that marriage, loving on kids and so forth. And so I say this as a, sort of knowing the demands and knowing how... Um, adventuresome again and exhausting again it can be and so i pray for blessings for you in uh, in all of that all right let me get out of the way of this screen here a little bit we um as a reminder if you does anybody want a printout copy of the vision statement we have some up here you raise your hand and mike can get one of those to you also, you can find this on the website, and if you have Auto Creek app on your phone, here's a little quick directions on the web. You click on what we believe about us, what we believe, and then down at the bottom is the link to the document. If you go to your app, um, click on the Choose More Resources and Vision 2029 are ways uh, to get to that. As I noted a moment ago, the objective of our classes is to kind of work through the 2029 vision. 2029 will be the Otter Creek Church's 100th anniversary. And so about 10 years ago, um, we asked a, a number of folks to kind of come together and work through what might we seek to do in, uh, over the next decade. And that was presented two years ago. And then... Um, right before the COVID hit us. And so obviously we've been scattered just trying to keep our heads above water in the last couple of years.
but we thought it'd be helpful to kind of work through and think through uh, the 2029 vision again for a sense of kind of shared uh, conversation, discernment around that. Last week we talked about the process of visioning, having a committee so forth that came together and some of our, some of our core beliefs. We, there's a bunch more than what we talked about two weeks ago in our first class. The second class um, supposed to have been last week, but obviously on the 23rd. We're going to talk a little, little bit about doctrine of scripture as well as some of the history of Otter Creek and then the next two weeks, current identity and core values in the, in the last week, some of the things that we anticipate coming up in the future. Uh, quick review, mentioned that a moment ago, 20 OC members kind of dream about the future. Shepherds listened to that, crafted the vision. Um, you may or may not recollect that there was a large debt retirement that occurred in 2019. And so some of the vision process pointed to what might be some things we lean into as we have more cash flow and more resources available to us in that regard. Uh, that was affirmed in November 2019, and then I think presented early 2020. Um, today, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible. This is kind of some of the things that we're headed over the next number of weeks. Core beliefs last week, Bible some today, core values next week, some historical identity today, current identity, future identity next couple weeks. Our 2029 mission statement got summarized by those who worked on that document this way, Otter Creek Church is a family growing to be like Jesus, which I think, didn't that precede that document as well? So it just kind of got reaffirmed. Um, which in other words is a, is a sort of statement about Christian discipleship. And I would like to encourage you to remind, be reminded that um, you know, discipleship is one of those words that etymologically is linked to the word um, discipline, which is not too fun a word for most of us. Um, but it's a word that means um, positively, constructively, is a word that means one is regularly uh, growing and learning and practicing. And so to be um, what we're inviting, what we're all invited into as a part of this church is to say what does it look like to grow in Christian discipleship? You know, what does it look like? Um, and what does it look like for us to regularly be asking ourselves where do I need to grow? How may I grow? What do I need to let go of? How do I, what do I need to lean into? And these regular sorts of processes of, of doing that. There's lots, obviously lots of ways to do this, but it requires some basics, right? It requires relationships in which we're open with each other. It requires um, having, for me, it requires having people that are further along than I am that can help me know uh, what I might try. Uh, for me, it includes um, having a uh, people around me. I've got uh, one group of, there's five of us that have met. Uh, we try to meet every Saturday. It's gotten more complicated in the last couple of years, but we try, try to meet every Saturday together for probably spend about 12 years together, and we all know each other's crap really, really well. <laughs> and, and one of the things that's wonderful about that is that um, if something new arises that's really complex or difficult, and somebody's had a difficult week, we don't have to go back and tell the whole story. Right? We, just, we, we can allude to something, and they're all nodding their heads, and they understand, and then you tell what's de what you're dealing with th that day. Right? And that can only happen, again, through long-term uh, relationships in which we learn to listen to each other and learn to um, help each other go along the way. So, lots of, so again, this is just an invitation, I think, to take seriously the notion of uh, practicing Christian discipleship. Uh, today, Hotter Creek in the Bible... Uh, this is uh, one of the statements in the vision. We affirm the Bible to be inspired, authoritative, and trustworthy. 
this is grounded in our restoration movement from which churches of Christ arise. I think I asked this two weeks ago, but let me just do this one, one more time. Tell, those of you who are from Disciples of Christ Christian Church or Churches of Christ and those from other denominations. Okay. So um, how many of you who are from the restoration movement could uh, tell us some of the things you think were central to Churches of Christ 200 years ago? No creed but Christ. No creed but Christ was one of the slogans, right? Priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers, which means no sharp clergy laity distinction. What else? Unity and communion. Unity and communion. What else? Uh, the initial social pressures that arose out of that, which I may have alluded to a couple weeks ago, um, came out of Alexander Campbell being kind of disgusted with the division among the Presbyterians. He was a Presbyterian um, in Scotland, Ireland, and um, he and his father come to the United States both as um, pastors in the, in the Presbyterian tradition, and they're kind of disgusted that, you know, at the time on the western frontier, Thomas Campbell was a, a Presbyterian in Pennsylvania, which at the time was the western frontier. And they had churches out there where they would have a traveling pastor to come practice communion. But if you weren't the right kind of Presbyterian, you couldn't have communion with the other right kind of Presbyterians, right? And so um, he began to be kind of disgusted with that, started pushing back against that. I actually brought, got, got brought up before a, a church trial church court to test him, to try him for that. Uh, but in, in, in short, what happened was that the Campbells began to say, can't we practice no creed but Christ? That is, can't we not say, we are all Christians, um, and let's just be Christians. Let's don't be Presbyterian, Newburgh, or old light Christians. Let's just be Christians, right? Now, obviously, it's more complicated than it sounds um, because it gets more and more divisive the further they go. But nonetheless... Uh, some of the commitments are important and have been helpful in some ways and more challenging in other ways. But this is one of them where the scriptures speak, we speak, where the scriptures are silent, um, we are silent. And again, even this slogan is really problematic. It's a, it can be helpful at one level, but it's just really problematic. Um, but nonetheless, what it's pointing to that is certainly part of our heritage is that we care about scripture. We care about the authority of scripture. We care about uh, the normativity of Scripture, even though the processes of interpretation can get messy really quickly, nonetheless, it's a commitment to the authority of Scripture that's grounded in our immediate tradition and, and I would say, in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition as a whole. This is one of the statements in the, in the, in the vision. The Bible is the God-breathed, historical, revelatory, and true story of God at work in the world. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the Bible was written by people spanning many different regions, three different languages, uh, or more. It's a document full of narrative, poetry, proverb, letter, apocalyptic prophecy, and song. Let me just pause there just a second. Um, so far, comments, questions about um, what we've kind of put up there yet about Scripture, or some of the things that you see about this that are encouraging to you, or things about this that are challenging to you. I'm a college professor. I can wait people out forever. <laughs> so don't be shy. 
So it seems like there's a pretty wide continuum of people at church here, probably even in leadership, around what this actually means. And so, because there's, I think, a couple of words throughout this that have kind of historical precedent to them. <clears throat> so what what is the intent of what are we trying to align around? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can't speak for others. I can only speak for myself on that. Uh, but that's a great question and it's great observations. Um, but um, I, I would say that what it's doing is a, is a sort of um, in my mind, is pointing to the fact that um, as a Christian community, we're committed to uh, taking the witness of Scripture seriously. And that um, this is the story out of which we live. And that this doesn't mean, in my mind, and I don't think it means this for any most of the leadership, as far as the shepherds are concerned, any sort of naivete about how simple that's supposed to be. Um, because the, the very fact, for example, that you've got uh, different genres here, narrative, poetry, proverb, letters, apocalyptic uh, literature, and so forth, means that um, the simple refrain, well, the Bible says, is, is often the start of a bad conversation. Um, not because we want to undercut or subvert the authority of Scripture, but that to take this seriously is not a simplistic task. It's a complicated task. Um, and so I think those would be starting conversations about it. Any follow-up? or No. Okay, great, great question. Somebody just, else? Just cultural differences. Yeah. That we have no idea, nor can we even relate to, and that we've come through multiple translations. Yeah. So it's just not what was spoken and then yeah. translated into English. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's layered. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think specifically, you know, we're raising our hands because we come from very different backgrounds. From a, from a Christian perspective. And even what God breathes means, right. there's a lot kind of like inherent to that, yeah. which I think contributes potentially to potential bad conversation. Right, yeah. And so when we're aligning around <coughs> creeds for us as a community, um, especially, I would say, coming from Church of Christ, um, there wasn't a lot of good discussion around, hey, what does that actually mean? To right. What, yeah. what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great observation, right? So for some people, God-breathed means, God-breathed historical means there are zero mistakes anywhere in the Bible, for example, right? Um, and, um, and a lot of people still want to argue that. Um, but the facts are that just doesn't work. Um, you know, Paul, for example, misquotes how many people died in the wilderness 
in what is it? Second, uh, where is this? And Jacob, you should know this. You're in, you're in, uh, you're in your MDiv somewhere in. Yeah, in, in I'm, I'm at Vanderbilt. Yeah, well, that's not true. <laughs> that's right. We don't want to talk to Jacob about they, this. They don't have the same view of scripture. Yeah. That maybe right. Uh, but so, so the, but uh, you know, so Paul, for example, misquotes the number that died in the wilderness in Second Corinthians. I think it is uh, in the story that's told in Numbers, and he just misquotes it. And there's no, there's no evidence in the manuscripts that the manuscripts made a mistake. It's that Paul made a mistake. And we can multiply this, right? So then the, then the question becomes, well, in what way is it trustworthy? And so then, then we're off and running, right? So um, these are important conversations. Um, but another thing I would like to point to is that, um, I think I may have mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You know, I love this philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, who says a tradition is an argument extended across time and by argument, we don't mean being argumentative. We mean having rigorous conversations about something over a long period of time. Well, I think what, um, what the Christian tradition, one of the things the Christian tradition does is it has arguments about what these texts mean for us. And in the fact of arguing about what these texts mean for us, we are thereby living true to the tradition. You know, some years ago, um, I had a, a friend who's not a Christian who's an anti-death penalty lawyer, comes to come do a presentation on campus. And so he'd done his presentation. At the end of the presentation, um, one of our undergrads raised his hand and said, so what do you think about Romans 13, about the role of the state in capital punishment? And this friend of mine, the lawyer, said, he said, that text has no authority in my life. I really don't care what Romans 13 says. Okay, that's someone who's not practicing a Christian tradition, right? That, that document doesn't have authority for him, so he's not going to engage it. Um, where for us, we care about what Romans 13 says because we've decided this is a part of our identity, and so we grapple with that text. Second kind of sub-point I'll note about this, about complex layers to this, is that I think a lot of times we overlook the fact that oftentimes the Bible is having an argument with itself. So, for example, you've got the book of Proverbs that basically says, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad, right? If you're lazy, you're going to have a leaky roof. If you commit adultery, your life's going to be screwed. So forth and so on. That's, 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 what it, that's what it says, right? And so, so then, then, however, comes, comes along the book of Job. And the book of Job says, well, I'm not so sure about that, right? And you have three friends who come see Job, and what they're basically doing is embodying the wisdom of the Proverbs. And at the end of the book of Job, God says about those three friends, they did not say what is right about me. And Job, you're seeing something. You've got an attitude, but you're seeing something, right? And so what Job, Job is, is this argument in the text of Scripture itself with Scripture. And so it's this rigorous dialectical engagement with the story. And then us asking, well, how in the world are we supposed to live out of that? Right? And so it's not a simplistic thing. It's a complicated, layered thing, but it's taking seriously the authority of Scripture for our lives. It's taking seriously the story of Scripture for our lives and knowing that it's pointing to people's experiences um, that they have had in their encounters with this God revealed in Moses, the prophets, Jesus, and, and the apostles, and so forth. So, great question. Anybody else got a comment here? 
I mean, just to elaborate on your point, I mean, the Bible is, of course, an extremely complex piece of literature. Right. Uh, and very few people in practice are going to, over their lives, even be able to truly understand the complexity and the depth and the inferences that you're supposed to be making. And so God understands that, and he essentially gives us the most short cliff notes that have ever been in practice, right? Love God and love people, and, you know, especially the widows and orphans. And so I think that the problems come when we're all commonly understanding this need to simplify but doing it in different ways yeah and so very uh, loose parallel from the marketing world which is where i live you know we spend careers and careers studying heuristics which are the ways that consumers uh predictably cut out pieces of information in a choice set because you can't process everything in a choice set and so you know i think that multiple areas of christianity are just we're just practicing different heuristics. I mean, we're just mm. cutting out pieces of information differently because we can't all process it all. Yeah. Life being what it is. Very well said. Thank you. They've got three, I think they've got three subpoints on under this. Um, th- this one. Um, <clears throat> then they've got the inspired. Uh, and here pointing to the fact that the, the, the sub-point, I think, is, is interesting to note, important to note. We believe the Bible is never meant to be worshipped for its own sake, but rather revered for its ability to bring people closer to the mystery of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a lot of times, for example, we'll, we'll refer to the Bible as the Word of God, but in the New Testament, technically speaking, it's Christ is the Word of God. Um, and Scripture points to the divine mystery in Christ being reve- revealing to us the full revelation of the Word of God, right? And so, um, it, it's Christ that, uh, that it's all pointing to. Lee, yes. Can you, can you go back to where you covered the first week about uh, we, we treat it like a law book, but what we need to do is enter the story. Yeah. But can you kind of re, re, repeat that? Sure, yeah. So, um, so it's, again, it's a, it's a whole question of what the Bible is, right? And... Um, one of the things um, that we have inherited from our restoration movement roots is the language of seeing the Bible as a constitution. It's Alexander Campbell's language. I'm going to do a really quick 90-second <laughs> historical par- par- parenthetical about that. Um, if you look at why Alexander Campbell called the Bible a constitution, its historical context is actually quite admirable because he's looking at the arbitrary caprice of the monarchy of England and the monarchies of Europe, who can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and he says, our God's not that way. Our God has said, here are promises, here's covenant, here's expectations, here's what I will give, here's what I will do, here's what you can trust. The Bible is like a constitution. You see what he's doing historically? Now, of course, what happened, unfortunately, with that metaphor is it became more about a law book. We're going to get this, get this rule, get this rule, get this rule, get this rule, get this rule. Keep this rule, right? If you don't keep this rule, at worst, it's if you don't keep this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, you're going to hell when you die, right? Um, but instead, it's, um, it's, it's even faddish, I would say, but it's a fad that I think is truer to what go, is going on in Scripture, and that is so-called narrative theology. And so the idea here is that what Scripture is is a story to which we are invited. It's a story that we think is true. Um, but it's a story to which we are invited to live out of. And so maybe the example I gave a couple weeks ago was, um, you know, Paul could have said in 2 Corinthians 9, he could have said, look, when he was talking about doing the collections for the poor, you know, he could have said, give 10%. That's not what he did. What he did was, 
we serve a God who, though he was rich, became poor and came and dwelt among us. And then he basically says, you live like this story is true. See how different that is? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not this sort of legalistic, constitution-based approach. But it's a story. We, we serve a God who, though he was God, became poor for our sake. Who did not hold on to equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, serving us, as the oldest hymn we know of, uh, recorded in Philippians 2, and so forth. And so, um, and, and moreover, I think we should not miss the fact that that story has changed human history. There's a fascinating new book I'm working through by a historian named Tom Holland, who's an ancient historian, um, Oxford-trained guy. And uh, this book called Dominion, he's not a Christian, but what he's doing is he's looking at the Christian story, and he loved the, he loved the Roman Empire, and he loved the, the Greco, Greco-Roman history, and had written several books about that kind of stuff, and then he found himself just getting disgusted, and thinking, I don't believe I want to be the kind of person who celebrates the Roman emperors, because they were horrific to people, and they had a view of the world that you had the few powerful and everybody else, and you can do whatever you want to to them. And he looks in at the crucifixion and says, the crucifixion is a story that radically changes human history because the crucifixion is a story about a God who says that he will identify with the most shamed, the most humiliated, the most marginalized, the most poor, the most hated. And that then changes human history. because So even today, when you look, for example... In what you have in, in Western traditions of legal jurisprudence is that everybody has rights. And what he's saying is, where did that come from? It came from this claim in a crucified God saying, everybody, even the most despised, is to be honored. See, so the living out of the story is the thing, rather than seeing this as a legalistic. Thanks for pointing us to that. All right. Um, inspired, authoritative... Uh, trustworthy. Again, all of these things would need to be unpacked and worked through, uh, but any, any other questions on any of those things before we move on to a little bit of Otter Creek church history? Great. This is um, Henriette and Gordon Campbell's uh, apparently yellow school bus, or one they had like this, in 1929, and uh, decided they need to be reaching out more to kids. And um, out of that kind of vision of uh, uh, Miss Campbell, uh, what you have then is the beginning of a simple rural church in the 1940s, Otter Creek Church of Christ, a house, as I understand it, that was converted into a, into a church building. And uh, apparently that's Ed Rucker. If any of you know Ed Rucker, uh, that's Ed Rucker as a baby there in those days. Um, Added, added a porch, added a steeple, and then on to the run in the 1950s, moved to Granny White Pike. Um, and then in the 1950s, I love this story about a Sunday school class. It had the, the Ruckers, the Gauls, Brandons, Armstrongs, Wilsons, Colsons, Justices, and they began to ask questions about what does it mean to live out this story. They began to ask story kinds of questions, right? What does it mean to live into these sorts of things? And so one, one example of this was that they had opportunity after the Korean War was over to buy some property in Seoul, uh, South Korea, 
and to start a Christian school. So they pooled $52,000 and started this school. Um, as I understand it, that property, that property in Seoul has become something of a uh, hotly, uh, hot, it's a hot, it's hot, because now it's worth, now it's worth a billion dollars. And so when you have a billion dollars, you know, value, people began to kind of grasp and grab. I'm sure you don't know what that might mean. But um, anyway, it, this, but nonetheless, they, they said, what can we do, you know, on the other side of the world? And I think that they even, um, some of you may know this history better than me, but I have the, my re- a recollection that they did some basic things like buy cows. I think they bought like 100 cows or something and stuck them on the cargo ship and somehow got them to Korea to help. It's just it's fascinating sort of saying, how can we be creative and vision, you know, take seriously the vision of the kingdom of God and try to be of service and bear witness to the kingdom of God. 1960s, uh, the emphasis that started early on with children gave rise to the start of Otter Creek Kindergarten. I think in the notes they say that something like 6,000 children have been schooled in Otter Creek Kindergarten since it began in 1960, and now with that being expanded uh, with the continued work at West End as well. In 1966, um, some of you may know of Agape here in town, uh, but Agape was started by people at Otter Creek. It was originally a ministry of Otter Creek Church, and one of the needs uh, was to try to provide support and a space of safety and encouragement for unwed mothers. And so it was a sort of ministry to unwed mothers, and then in time, ministry to help with foster children and adoption and counseling and family counseling by the, by the time you get to uh, today. But again, this was a sort of people at Otter Creek who said, here's a true, genuine need in our community that we're aware of. What can we do to be serious about trying to take this need seriously and do something about it? Uh, 1970s, Buddy Arnold. Buddy Arnold was a, a much beloved faculty member at Lipscomb for many, many years. Um, he was um, at Otter. I don't know when he began. I don't know if he started at Otter Creek in the 1970s, but a long time Otter Creek uh, figure of great importance. But in the 1970s, uh, began working with Otter Creek with regard to worship. Uh, apparently, they would have these large crowds on Wednesday evenings come, and this kind of then begins to be this emphasis that we've seen in worship in Otter Creek Church. Uh, in 1986, Father Charlie Strobel, Catholic priest here in town, uh, wanted to begin taking seriously service to the homeless in Nashville, and um, he actually started, I think his first church that partnered with him was um, Riverwood Church of Christ uh, in uh, downtown. And then Otter Creek was one, maybe among the top four or five, I don't remember the numbers, that began to partner with Charlie. And uh, Room in the Inn has grown into a, a wonderful effort to, to serve and care for the homeless and has done a lot of beautiful work in the world. 1995, um, Made in the Streets is a, if you're not familiar with Made in the Streets, a ministry in Nairobi, Kenya to street children. And we've had a lot of folks from Otter Creek who have been there, who have participated in that through the years. And uh, I would encourage you, if you ever have an opportunity to go, you should go. Uh, but Otter Creek became overse- overseeing church for Made in the Streets. Um, we didn't become overseers in 1995, uh, but it Made in the Streets began in 1995. I think maybe that began in 2006 or 10 or so. Um, lots of Maiden Streets board members, Otter Creek members, even still uh, to this day. 
Uh, yes. On, on that one too, it also helps women because once women are divorced, uh, they have no job, no education, nothing. And so what they do is they bring them into Bayman Streets and they help them develop a vocation so that they can make a living and provide for their family. So that's something that's been added to it. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a wonderful, um, wonderful work. 1995 Zoe Group, uh, Brandon Scott Thomas was at Otter Creek in the, in the 90s and um, he began doing a lot of work around facilitating worship renewal and uh, was supported by, I think, Doug and Nan Smith and others, and they began to kind of be really intentional about how could we help facilitate worship renewal in churches around the country, and uh, they've done a lot of great work through the years of uh, helping churches in that regard, provide passion and so forth. 1998, Wayne Reed Christian Child Care Center. Um, Wayne uh, was a wonderful human being and uh, incredible man who uh, had to go through more than his fair share of difficulties in life and yet he always maintained this steadfast spirit and spirit of kindness and spirit of graciousness and seeking to care for the poor and the marginalized and so they named the Christian Child Care Center after Wayne uh, Sandy Collins especially was uh, central to this work of trying to bring the gift of OC Kindergarten to, to children of Nashville uh, one of the things I actually learned this from Sandra and have verified this from a couple of different places that, that there's um, there's statistics that are done. I mean, this is this is this is astonishing and troubling. Um, but some predictions about capacity that's going to be needed in prisons, based upon childhood reading rates. Um, and so this is what's meant by the the um, what do they call it? The school to prison pipeline or preschool to prison pipeline, um, and it's it's one of the uh, it's one of the key things that Sandra and others that have done such good work with this Wayne Christian Childcare Center are doing is they're saying, look, if these kids don't know how to read at this age, they are being set up for great grief. And let us take seriously that we know this. It's sociological data that we know. But what can we do about it? So again, it's this sort of saying, here's a real problem in our community. What's a real solution? that is true to the gospel that we can seek to embody. And that is a ministry in downtown Nashville. It's right. not anywhere around Brookwood or West End. It's yeah. there where right the downtown. are. Yeah. Um, Living Water is another ministry that was uh, born out of Otter Creek Church. Uh, this is Shannon Dickerson. I never did get to meet Shannon. He, uh, he died early from a very aggressive cancer. And in the last year or so of his life, he became aware of the plight of the global poor with regard to not having access to clean water. And in that last year or so of his life, he said, I want to do something about this. Can we build a well somewhere? And so he got some friends at Otter Creek, and they, they did that. They went and did that before, I think the first one or two was built before he died. Does anybody know this story very well? I think the last, first one or two were built before he died. Then after he passed, a number of his friends um, who are still here at Otter Creek said, why don't we take Shannon's vision seriously and keep doing this? And um, if you're unfamiliar with Living Water and you're interested in this, you, there's lots of opportunities to get connected with them as well. Uh, I think up to 800 wells done now 
uh, serving nearly 400,000 people. And this is one of those things that Laura and I support financially as much as we can. And, um, you know, I, I'm grateful to get us. I got a statement yesterday um, that, you know, that said how many people we were able to help give clean water to over just what we've given the last couple months. And again, concrete problem, concrete real solution uh, made, if, if made you available. If you want to know more about that, Kevin Covet, uh, you can find him on the church directory. Uh, he's very much about, he just got back from Guatemala about two weeks ago. Yeah, Kevin Covet, John Lee, um, Brad. Christian. Not Chrysler, Brad Glisson, Jim Arnett. Um, he, a lot of these folks are on the uh, on the board uh, currently. 2006 consignment sale began at Otter Creek. Uh, they've raised uh, over $700,000 through the years to benefit a lot of different OC partner ministries that have served a lot of real concrete needs. And again, it's a sort of entrepreneurial flair. You know, what can we do that can make a difference in the world? I uh, moved to Franklin Road in 2006 from the old Granny White spot. Um, we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of challenges that have come from that growth over the years. 2019, retired the debt. Uh, 2019, started doing the, the vision and then uh, pandemic. And during the midst of the pandemic, uh, attaining a West End campus and more online work as well. First Otter Creek service at West End was uh, almost a year ago there. Ed Rucker's still here, still working and uh, doing, doing lots of good work. Uh, comments, questions, things that stand out to you? or I love the history. Um, and every time I'm always struck with the rich history that we have, there's a really rich history with West End. And if we're serious about that merger and we're serious about that marriage, I think we tap into those history, that history and those learnings. Um, West End, so Jason and I went there hmm. years before we became members here, years before hmm. there's ever talk about, you know, uh, acquiring them. And one of the cool things about, and somebody else is going to have to go into all the history, but one of the really cool things about West End that we loved was um, the way that they partnered with other churches, including the synagogue right next door. Um, there's... I think we've all probably been through um, churches that have split apart where there have been significant losses. And what I really appreciated about West End, there were a lot of flaws at the time, but one of the things that they took seriously is that we can find common ground. And um, so, you know, I think incorporating some of that history um, in the next round of this presentation would be super cool. Thank you. We've got a recording of that. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody else? Comments? Questions? One thing I would like to encourage you to consider is uh, to, to think of um, all these people through these decades that have said, here's a real problem. Here's a real way we can bear witness to the kingdom of God in our community or around the world. So, what can we do? And then they pull together some people and they say, well, maybe we could do this. And they start doing it, right? And this is a part of the legacy of this church that I love. Um, and... But going back to the Jacob talking about, you know, part of our tradition is the priesthood of all believers, which is to point to the fact that um, you don't have to have a cleric to do, to do something, right? You can, as a small group, as a life group, as a Sunday school class, say, this is something we need to tend to, we think. And so, how can we do that? So, feel yourself, I would hope that you would feel yourself liberated, 
encouraged, invited by the history uh, of our local church. Anybody else? Anything else in closing? Peace to you, much joy, and we'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing.